Hello, everybody. This is Parshas Parshas Vayikra, and the Parsha begins with the statement Vayikra Hashem Amayisha. Hashem calls out to Amayisha, and if you look in the Torah, the word Vayikra is written with a small aleph. And all the Mefarshim discuss why is the aleph small. And there's a well-known shot that's given that the aleph is small because Rashi explains to us that Vayikra, the language of calling out, it's a language of respect, a language of love, whereas Vayakar. The language which is used when Hashem talks to Bilam, it's a language of mikra, of happenstance. It's not a calling out, it's not a, an appointment, a, 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 a speaking to which the person, so to speak, planned and calls out in advance for. Rather, Hashem happens to Bilam because Bilam is not on the same adrega as Maishu Rabbeinu. There's no love from Hashem to Bilam. And that's why the Aleph, which shows that Maishu Rabbeinu's uniqueness and his madrega, his high stature, is small because Maishu Rabbeinu was an anav. He's a very modest person. He didn't want to write how amazing he is in the Torah, so he asked Hashem to leave that aleph out. And Hashem, so to speak, acquiesced and led him to make at least the aleph smaller, not to bring a lot of attention to that aleph. That's the shot that everyone says. Now the question that's asked, though, is that really this is not the first time in the Torah when the word Vayikra Hashem Amesha is written. If you look in Parashat Yisrael, Parakatas Pasik Chaf, before Har Sinai, it says the same exact expression. It says Vayikra Hashem Amesha. Hashem calls out to Mesha. And there the Aleph is regular. So why does Mesha Rabbeinu, why does the Torah choose to bring out this point of the small Aleph only here in Parashat Vayikra and not earlier over there? I saw a beautiful shot in the Sefer Meshulchan Gavaya. He says as follows, there's a Gemara, a very difficult Gemara in the Dara and the Flamen Ches. The Gemara says as follows, HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not arrest his Shechina, his divine presence, on a person unless he is a Chacham, he is wise, he's an Ashir, he is rich, he is a Gibar, he is strong, and he's an Anav and he's modest. And the Gemara says, how do I know that these are the components, these are the character traits, so to speak, that are necessary for Hashem to rest the upon somebody? Says the Gemara, we learn them all from Maishu Rabbeinu. Maishu Rabbeinu is strong. He, we see he picked up the Mishkan and erected it all by himself. Maishu Rabbeinu is rich because we see that we, told, we were told that after he chiseled out the Luchos, which were made out of sapphire, Hashem said the carvings, the leftover pieces, he can take for himself. And a Chacham wise, we understand he was very wise, and he was <coughs> Anav, he was very modest, as the Torah says, he was an Anav Mikal Adam. And the question on the Gemara is obvious, how can you say that, why would it be that Hashem would only rest his Shechina on somebody who's rich or strong? Modesty, we understand, is something that's essential, but why would it need to be strong or rich? And the Rambam Mishmane Prakram actually explains the Gemara to mean not physical strength, rather the ability to control oneself. Ezehu Gibar Hakovich Zitzer, who is somebody who's strong, says the mission of us. Someone who controls his, his evil inclination and who is rich, says the mission of us. It refers to somebody who's happy with his lot. But if you look at the Gemara, the Gemara seems to talk about practically physical strength and riches. So the Ruach Chaim, Rav Chaim Velazhner, he explains the Gemara as follows. He says, in life, there's two types of people who are modest or are humble. For example, a person can have a very bad voice. And when he sings, everyone cringes. Such a person, for him to be modest about his voice and not to boast about his beautiful voice, it's, it's important, you know, if someone who doesn't get it and is in denial, it's, it's really, really painful. But that's one type of modesty. But then you have a person who does, in, in fact, truly have a beautiful voice. He really does have talent. 
and yet he doesn't boast about it, that's a real high level of modesty. That means that person recognizes that although he has talents, although he has gifts, they're not his. He didn't create the fact that he had a good voice. These are gifts from Hashem, and he's modest about the fact that, look, it's not my fault. I didn't do it, and I appreciate that Hashem gave it to me. When the Gemara tells us Hashem only rests his on somebody who's rich, who's strong, who's wise, and is humble, the key point is the anivas, is the fact that he's humble. But to truly be a humble person in the fullest extent, it's only possible when a person has what to boast about. When a person has talents, a person has wealth, a person has gifts, and a person still is modest, and a person still has anivas, and he recognizes that everything he has is from Hashem, he did nothing to earn those things, that's the level of modesty of anivas that's necessary for a person to reach that the Shekhinah rest upon him. <clears throat> and that, says Rechaim Velazhner, is what the Gemara means. That being said, let's go back to our original question. Moshe Rabbeinu, the first time he's called out by Hashem before Har Sinai, Yes, he was modest, but he didn't reach the highest levels yet. He wasn't rich yet. He didn't carve out the Lucas yet. He didn't have those carne ahoy, that beautiful light that came out of his face. He hadn't reached his pinnacle of success yet. Only by Parshas Vayikru, when Moshe Rabbeinu reached the height of his success, and he was still the end of Mikhail Adam, he was still just as humble and just as modest, that's when we want to bring out Moshe Rabbeinu's modesty, because that is the fullest expression of him being an end of Mikhail Adam. And something very relatable for us, we all have things that we know we're lacking in, and we all have things that we know that we actually are good at. When it comes to things that we're good at, and somebody slights us and kind of, you know, doesn't appreciate our talents, do we get offended then? Or even then, do we say, look, you know what I mean? Who cares? I didn't give myself these talents, like Baruch who gave them to me. This person doesn't recognize them, they don't recognize them. That's fine, it's not personal. And that's really where Anivas comes about is in things that we do have, talents we do have, and recognizing that they all ultimately come from Hashem. One of the major themes in Sefer Vayikra and Parshas Vayikra is the concept of karbanis, of sacrifices, and all the Rishonim discuss at length the deeper meanings and the, the Kabbalistic reasons for all the different aspects of karbanis, different types of karbanis. But the Arachayim HaKadosh deals with the obvious question, which is that how could it be a person's sins and instead of the person getting punished, so to speak, the person can just give an animal in his place and kills the animal, and he's atoned for. How does that work? And Archaim Akash explains and says a very, very important thing. He says, the Gemara tells us in Saita, Ein Adam chayte, a person doesn't commit a sin, Ella Imkain, only if Nichnas Boy Ruachstus, it came inside him a spirit of foolishness. What that means, says Arachayim HaKadosh, is that a person, when he's fully engaged in his human intellect, in his das, he'd understand that it's ridiculous to sin. How can I sin against HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who gives me everything, and, and he knows what's best for me, and he's telling me not to do this. When a person sins, he is, so to speak, disengaging his seichel, his mind, and he's going after his animalistic side. So, if a person commits a sin, if we would make the person himself suffer, we would take, so to speak, the full person, so to speak, and kill him, God forbid. That wouldn't be fair, because the full person in his entirety, with his mind and everything in place, that didn't sin. Only the physical, animalistic side of himself sinned. So a person, when he sins, says Arachayim HaKadosh, and a person recognizes he made a mistake, and he's holding by doing tshuva, the Torah tells him, take an animal, 
and bring it as a carbon so that you recognize and you realize that what sinned was your animalistic side. And the reason why you're here today and being able to do tshuva is because you have more in you. You have a mind, you have a seichel, which can connect the spiritual rea realities, and you have more in you. And that's what a carbon spends to teach a person, that if it was just for the physical side of himself, he's just like an animal, and he can go on to the mezbeach. It's only because that uniqueness that he has of the seichel and that ruach that he has inside himself that allows him to come bigger, and that will prevent him from sinning again, and that will let him fully engage in the process of tshuva. This week is Parsha Zachar, and the Gemara Shoshana, the Mishnah, tells us that the way Kla Yisrael ultimately won the war against Amalek was that Moshe Rabbeinu stood on the mountain, and he had Aaron and Chor on two sides, and as Moshe Rabbeinu's hands went up, and the Jewish people were mishtabdu enayim, they, they kind of put their eyes upon Hashem and Shemayim where their hands were pointing to, and through the tefillahs of Moshe Rabbeinu and the tshuva of Klai Yisrael, that's how they were able to defeat Amalek. And the truth is, if you look in the beginning of Parsha's Balak, the Rashi there says an interesting thing. Rashi says in Medrash that when the nations of the world wanted to hire Bilam to attack, to kind of curse the Jewish people, the way they came to the conclusion that it was a good idea to hire Bilam was they did some research. And they called the people of Midian, and they asked them, said, what's this, what's the kayak, what's the power behind Moshe Rabbeinu? What's his, what's his, what's his secret? And they said, "Ein koychay elabepeh." Moshe Rabbeinu's his power, his uniqueness is his peh, is his ability to daven, and that's how you got to fight him. That's why they got Bilam, because Bilam was also somebody who knew how to, so to speak, daven and pray and curse other nations. So my Rebbe Yerbaron Weinshaw once asked Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, the Rishiyah of Philadelphia, asked him, "You know, how do the nations of the world know that Moshe Rabbeinu knew how to pray?" You ask a guy, you ask a random person about a great tzaddik. Does he pray? He's had no idea. I never saw him. Moshe Rabbeinu, he doesn't, he doesn't pray out loud in the middle of Times Square. How do they know that Moshe Rabbeinu had a special ability to daven? So Shmuel Kamenetsky looked at him and he said something interesting. He said in Yiddish, Vos frekstu. What are you asking? When a Yid davens, when a Yid davened, mezet them of the mensch. You can see it on the person. A person who davens looks different. David Amalek says in Sefer Tehillim, Va'ani Sefila, and I am a prayer. What does that mean? So the Farshim explains that David Amalek was saying he became a different person. He became a person who is, in essence, a person who prays. His entire his reality changed. He's a person who's not disconnected. He's a person who's connected to Hashem through his tefillah. And a person who davens like that, he looks different. He looks like somebody who's connected to something bigger. And that's how the Goyim knew that Moshe Rabbeinu was his kayak, was a tefillah. And that's something that we have to think about when we daven, is that we're not just davening, we're changing ourselves, we're connecting ourselves to something bigger, and it changes everything about us throughout our day. So I want to end off with one last thought. Rav Dessler writes that we know in Halakha it's brought down, so it's a Gemara and Tiny stuff, that Misha Niknas Adar Marbim Besimcha, as Adar comes in, we have to increase in Simcha. And Dasser points out that if you look there, the Mishnah is talking about two things. It says, Mishnah Av, when the month of Av comes in, Mima'atin B'Simcha, we decrease in Simcha. And when Adar comes in, we increase in Simcha. And we all know that when it comes to the month of Av, we don't simply decrease in Simcha when we get to Tisha B'Av. What happens is we start the month, 
We have it three weeks before that already. Then the month of Av starts. We have the nine days when we increase the morning. Then we have Tisha B'Av, which is the pinnacle of the morning. It goes gradually, decreasing the Simcha, decreasing the joy. It happens in steps. So too, says of Dasa, has to happen with Adar. A person can't expect to walk into Purim and just be, be happy. It has to start from Rosh Adar and move on and build up. Every day of Adar, a person has to increase his Simcha. Now, how does a person do that? How does a person make himself more besimcha? So, the Vilna Gain explains at the beginning of his Pirush Megillah that the idea why Purim is such a happy time, the simcha that comes in Purim, is because unlike all other, so to speak, Megillahs or all other Yom Tevin that we have, which celebrate things that happened when the Besamekdash existed or we had a Mishkan, when Hashem instilled prophecy, we had an open relationship with Hashem. But Purim is the, is the holiday that celebrates. The relationship the Jews have in Akash Baruch Hu is nistar, he's hidden from us. And yet he orchestrates the events and protects us, and a Jew celebrates that on Purim, that special relationship that we have with Hashem, even in seemingly mundane life, we still have Hashem watching out for us and taking care of us. That's the Simcha of Purim. And a person has to spend time during the month of Adar living with that, stopping and focusing and thinking about how Hashem is there for him, even behind the scenes, and making it happen. I'm going to tell you a story I heard this morning. I have a friend of mine who I meet in the gym. His name is Honey Weinberg, Rabbi Honey Weinberg. He works in the Chabad Masift over here in Chicago. And he told me the following story. He has a sister and a brother-in-law, the Chazans, who are, they, they, they work in the yeshiva in Dnipropetrovsk, which is a city in Ukraine. And obviously they had to evacuate recently. So the whole yeshiva had to evacuate, and they went, eventually they ended up in Paris. And his sister and brother-in-law and their family, they went to Paris for Shabbos. And the yeshiva moved on. The yeshiva was moved to Dusseldorf, Germany. But the one of the rabbis in Paris is a cousin of theirs. And he helped them get the yeshiva off to Dusseldorf. But he told them, look, just stay for Shabbos. You guys had a crazy time. You just evacuated. Spend the Shabbos here in Paris with me. You relax. And then you'll go off to Dusseldorf to the yeshiva. So after Shabbos, they relaxed. They're happy. So meanwhile, they made the decision that the wife and kids of the Chazans, they're going to go to Manchester where his parents are and kind of spend some time there. And he was going to go off to the be with the yeshiva with be with the Bakram there. So he goes to the train station, Rabbi Chazan, he's standing there. And sure enough, he misses his train. It's French, everything doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't understand anything. He misses his train. So he's standing there with his hand luggage and he's trying to find out where the next train is. He's talking to people, no one's talking to him. If anybody ever been in Paris, they're not very friendly, especially if you don't speak French. And... As he's running around trying to find the next train, sure enough, boom, someone steals his hand luggage. Fine, so his hand luggage is gone, his towels and filling are gone, everything's gone. And so he calls his brother in law, Connie Weinberg, and he tells him this story. He says how he's sitting there in a train station, no hand luggage, no nothing, doesn't speak a word. But he said it was such siyat the Shmaya. He said, You know why? Because when I went to the lost and found there, I tried telling the police that my hand luggage was stolen, tried to see maybe something was found. When I was there, I managed to find someone else's towels and filling ended up in the lost and found there. I took a picture on my phone and I sent it to my my cousin who's a rabbi and hopefully we'll get it back to the guy whose towels and filling it is. So my hand luggage was stolen. So Rabbi Weinberg told me, he's like, think about this. You have a guy who just had to evacuate with his whole yeshiva from Ukraine. His car, his house, everything he owns, he has no idea if he's ever going to see it, ever going to see it again. He comes to the train station his hand luggage is stolen. His towels and phone. The last possessions he owns are now gone. And what does he think? 
He's like, ah, it's Siyat Nishmai. I managed to find another Yid's talisman film. That's a Yid. A Yid can be Vesimcha and can see the positive no matter what's going on because a Yid has a connection to Akash Baruch Hu. A Yid has that trust and faith and knowledge that Akash Baruch Hu is running his life and he's here for a purpose and everything's going to come out well in the end and he just has to try to do the most he can while he's here. And I think, I don't know, hopefully we should never be in such a situation, but at least on a small level, it's something to think about as we go through our day, especially in Adar, to just focus on how we have a relationship with Hashem. He has a bigger picture. And it's a reason to be with Simcha. It's a reason to take day by day and increase that Simcha so that Mitzvah Shem Purim will be able to truly celebrate the La Yehudim HaYisra'ira, the Akash Baruch Hu, giving us that special light and joy that we'll get on Purim. Everyone should have a wonderful Shabbat.